everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Welcome back to Entrepreneur Rx. I have the pleasure of speaking with Lawrence Gerard. Now, he has been pinging me, Lawrence, it feels like for, I know it's not, but it feels like for years. Lawrence is the CEO and founder of Fruit Street and COVID-MD, in addition to um, a number of other new projects he's working on, Fruit Street delivers a CDC's diabetes prevention program to commercial health plans and employers via a group telehealth video conferencing uh, using registered dietitians, wearable devices such as Fitbit and uh, wireless scales. Lawrence is a incredible entrepreneur. I was harassing him for since he went to Harvard. He's a Zuckerberg Gates sort of protege. Uh, Lawrence, welcome to the show. Oh, uh, thanks for having me. I, I don't deserve to be compared to them. And uh, and uh, thank you for mentioning our, our COVID MD project, which was a, a temporary pandemic project where we wanted to have people consult with virtual doctors and get an at-home COVID test. But it turned out what happened with that was that we ended up focusing our efforts on diabetes prevention because the utilization of that product ended up taking off. So COVID MD is no more, but diabetes prevention is alive and well. <laughs> well, you know, let's chat about COVID MD for just for a second, not not because it didn't work, but just because of your rapid pivot to add that to your armamentarium of things you're doing now. Thank God you didn't say it was to prescribe ivermectin, um, <laughs> like that. I'd have to shut, you know, I'd have to shut this off right away. But right. talk about how quickly you pivoted to work on that once the pandemic started. Like, what was the time frame? That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, I just remember March of 2020 just watching the news and, you know, everybody talking about telemedicine and COVID and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like every healthcare entrepreneur tried to do something to help with the pandemic, even if it, they weren't working on something that was directly relevant because everybody felt this need to kind of have a social impact and kind of band together as a country. Um, we're part of something called Startup Health, which has like several hundred healthcare entrepreneurs and everybody wanted to do something with COVID. And so the idea was to allow people to take almost like a, you know, you would check your symptoms and then it would escalate you to talk to a doctor. And then the idea was that someone could get an at-home uh, PCR test, you know, as well. And so we spent, we did a lot of work on that. But then once we were six months into the project, what happened was that the diabetes prevention program utilization skyrocketed because what happened was people were at home. They weren't eating well, they were stressed, they weren't exercising, they weren't sleeping. And so some of our contracts with large Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, we just started enrolling thousands of people, which made us realize that we should shut down the COVID-MD product, which was not, it wasn't a separate company, which is a product of Fruit Street. And we should just focus on what we do well. And it just kind of brings you back to that lesson as an entrepreneur that focus on doing one thing really well. And that's what the most successful telemedicine companies do. And so it was an interesting experience where we had even recruited like tons of engineers and tons of talent who wanted to work on COVID MD. And then we repurposed that talent for diabetes prevention. And so I think it takes a lot of self-awareness as an entrepreneur to be willing to launch a new product, but then kill it fast enough to not destroy your whole company. So it was an interesting experience. Well, you know, that it's actually really interesting. And I mean, you're, you know, I'm, I've got a, a lot of gray hair on you. And I don't know that, that if I've always learned that one, you know, there's that old saying, you know, if you go after one rabbit, you have dinner. If you go after 10 rabbits, you starve. And yeah. I always remember the story of Steve Jobs coming back to Apple and killing 95% of the ideas people brought him and focusing on, I think it was five or maybe seven, but it was only a few. 
So obviously it's merit there and certainly was very smart of you to, to A, to go down that path initially to see where it led, but then B, pivot back to what you were doing so well, which was the diabetes stuff. Right, right, yeah. Now, as I recall, because as I was harassing you before we started, <laughs> the um, you raised a lot of money on LinkedIn because I was getting messages, it seemed like from you 24-7. When you initially started it, it was not a, a diabetes, or was it? Was it diabetes focused or was it more telemedicine general focused? Uh, yeah, so it was actually a telemedicine software product that we would license to dietitians and doctors as a software, as a service product. So they would pay us, let's say, $200 per month for the software. Most of the users were dietitians because it would allow them to video conference, but then also monitor diet and lifestyle. Like the patients could take pictures of their food, integrate it with scales, Fitbit, blood pressure cuffs. But we'd also have primary care doctors that would monitor their patients remotely um, as well. So we did that for four years, actually, from 2014 to 2018. And then we realized that instead of licensing software to dietitians, we could actually employ them and use the technology we had developed to deliver the CDC's diabetes prevention program to large self-insured employers and health plans because they have such a big incentive to prevent type 2 diabetes to reduce healthcare costs. And so we kind of repurposed the technology that we had built and then the revenue just started you know, increasing pretty quickly. Interesting. What do you, what do you see as the exit for Fruit Street? Where do you think it's going to go? What, what's your time frame? Yeah, well, um, we did about $3.9 million in revenue last year. We have a large channel partner that has rolled us out to some pretty large customers. Like we have um, a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan with 3 million members. We have, you know, one of the top five airlines as a customer, you know, as well. And so, so that partner is driving all of the revenue right now. I don't think I can say exactly who it is, but, you know, they're driving a lot of the revenue and, um, I don't really plan for exits. I don't really believe in that because I think that at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, you have to have a good product, grow your revenue, have happy employees, develop technology. And then if you get an acquisition offer, you can figure it out then, right? Um, you cross that bridge when you come to it kind of philosophy. Um, I mean, I also think the market size is big enough where Fruit Street could become a public company. If you look at Teladoc acquiring Livongo, that was $18 billion acquisition, right? Which just shows you the market size, the, the problem of diabetes and obesity is so big that you could have a public company in diabetes prevention, but I think most startups end up getting acquired rather than going public. That's usually what, what happens. And why did you pick diabetes? What was the genesis of that? Yeah, well, um, when I was in college, I was planning to go to medical school and then I was uh, volunteering in an emergency room while taking a nutrition epidemiology course. And I just realized that a lot of the patients coming into the emergency room with diabetes, heart disease, stroke, obesity, that so much of it was preventable through diet and lifestyle. And I read about physicians like Dean Ornish with his heart disease reversal program. Um, and I just realized that diet and lifestyle was so important. But, but the history of the diabetes prevention program is really quite unique. It goes all the way back to a Medicare-funded clinical trial where Medicare spent $175 million trying to figure out how to prevent type 2 diabetes because that's what drives a lot of the healthcare costs. So they had about 3,000 patients with prediabetes. There was three arms in the trial. There was the placebo arm. Another arm took metformin. And then the third was in a lifestyle modification program that consisted of 22 classes with a lifestyle coach covering topics like diet, exercise, sleep, stress management. And basically, they published this research in the New England Journal of Medicine 20 years ago, and it found that the lifestyle intervention was more effective than metformin in preventing type 2 diabetes. Uh, the lifestyle group reduced their risk by 58%. So that research led to 
Medicare and Medicaid paying for the diabetes prevention program, employers and health plans paying for the program, and then the CDC developed a national public health program where there's now 1,600 organizations delivering the program. And it also has support from like the AMA and that kind of thing. And so it's really the number one evidence-based program for preventing lifestyle-related diseases. And so when we go into an employer or a health plan, this is not Fruit Street's Diabetes Prevention Program or Lawrence Gerard's Diabetes Prevention Program. This is like 20 years of clinical research in the making. And so we're really part of a broader national effort to get, get the Diabetes Prevention Program distributed. But you know, they call it the Diabetes Prevention Program to get payers interested because if someone develops type 2 diabetes, their healthcare costs go up by $9,600 typically. Um, but really, it's a diet and lifestyle change program. If you lose 5% of your weight or you reduce your hemoglobin A1C, you're reducing your risk for many different chronic diseases and not just diabetes. Yeah, I was listening to a Peter Atia podcast this morning, actually, and they mentioned that, 12%, that 88% of adults have metabolic syndrome. Yeah. 88%. Now, I mean, I see it a lot in the emergency department, like, like you did when you were working back in your college days. I was blown away by 88%, however. So it's elevated HbA1c, it's elevated blood pressure, it's, it's not BMI, but it's the girth cir- circumference. I mean, just all these markers portend to really poor health outcomes. Right. And, uh, you're right. If you can get it early, and you know, one of the things they talked about in this, and I, I've, I've been personally focused on this for myself for probably 10 years, but if you can intervene early, so by the time people are interviewing, intervening when they have, quote, pre-diabetes, there's already been a lot of damage done. Yeah. So you've yeah. got to catch them early, early. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's why the Ad Council and the CDC and the AMA, they're running these national campaigns now where there's uh, one-minute risk quiz videos with like puppies and cute animals and stuff uh, to educate people because one in three Americans are pre-diabetic but eight out of 10 people with prediabetes don't know that they have it. It's very similar to hypertension, which you know is like the silent killer. One day you just kind of have a heart attack and that's it, right? Um, and so we have to really raise awareness of prediabetes so people are aware of what it is and then help them to enroll into a, a CDC-recognized diabetes prevention program. I think also fatty liver disease is relevant. Like people talk about prediabetes, but there's also this other epidemic that's not being talked about, a fatty liver disease too, you know? Oh, totally. I mean, it's this whole constellation of things that if you have one, it seems a poor 10 for all the others. So diabetes, obesity, fatty liver disease, and then all sequelae related to that. Yeah, I totally agree. So it's interesting. So what year were you at Harvard when you bailed out for a year and <laughs> to do your startup, Zuckerberg? I mean, I mean, sure. <laughs> Oh, thank you. You're, you're, you're funny. Um, yeah, so I was in a program at Harvard called the Harvard Extension School, which is typically for older adults, but there's been a group of traditional age college students that have pursued it. So I was in the bachelor's degree program there. And um, so I graduated high school in 2010 and started taking courses there in 2011. Some of my professors were uh, physicians in the psychology department that started the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at Harvard Medical School, where they teach physicians how to do these programs. But the same year they opened the Harvard Innovation Lab on the Harvard Business School campus, which is really where I got interested in entrepreneurship. And they just kind of started it as a summer project at the Harvard Innovation Lab and got some physicians from the medical school to invest and some Harvard Business School alumni. And the physicians actually named the company. So the name Fruit Street comes from the address of Massachusetts General Hospital, where the first physicians invested. So they, at first I hated it, but then I was like, oh, it's kind of like Apple computers and like fruit is healthy and street is like a journey. But the name is, I guess, the branding around it, right? But um, but yeah, and then I I uh, was there for a couple of years in Boston, and then I, I moved out to San Francisco. Tried that twice, but I came back to New York for my family as I, I'm just a native New Yorker. So now I've been here for, for quite a while. 
Yeah, you've done that. You've really done the typical entrepreneur journey. Start on the East Coast, move out to <laughs> Silicon Valley. That's that's pretty classic. And, you know, it's funny. I always wondered where you got the name Fruit Street. And I thought with the diabetes, I'm like, well, fruit's not all that good for you if you're a diabetic because of the high fructose. But but now I get it. Better than a candy bar, though, you know? <laughs> yeah, better than a candy bar. So, yeah, Candy Bar Street, I don't think would have sold well for uh, no. the diabetes, <laughs> diabetes prevention. So going back, how long have you been in Fruit Street? We were incorporated in May of 2014. All right. So, wow. You saw eight, eight years. So yeah. what what have you learned that you now that you because this will be really important for people who want to who are listening to say, you know, I want to be Lawrence when I grew up. What did you learn along the path that you wish you would have known back in 2014, 2015? That's a very long list. But if I had to pick the top, the top three, I mean, I think that um, culture is absolutely critical. I love that book called The No Asshole Rule. It's like, even if you have an A performer, but they're just a jerk to all of your other employees, you're going to go all. Gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. So I think culture is critical. It keeps people motivated and energized. You really need a small motivated team in a startup where they're really driven by the mission, but they also enjoy their work and they're, they're going to be often working long hours. So I think that's probably the, the number one thing. And then also the second thing is not just a good culture, but like good talent. I remember when I was a younger entrepreneur, I used to think that like recruiters were the stupidest thing in the world. Like, why do they pay? Why do these entrepreneurs pay them 20% of the, you know, their salary? Can I just find these people myself? But one of the best hires I ever made was because an email, uh, an email from a recruiter that emailed me randomly with someone's resume. And that person led to the contract that has generated most of our company's revenue today. And so you have to have good people, but also good talent. And then I think the last one would just be work-life balance. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I think I would have worked less, really. Um, I had more balance. You know, it's, it's not about working 100-hour weeks. It's more about, you know, a balance, right? You need to take care of your diet and lifestyle, live the free street lifestyle, and also be balanced as an entrepreneur and a person. Because if you're not balanced, you're going to find as an entrepreneur, you start being maybe a little agitated, maybe like meaner to people in your life than you would have liked. And um, that's not going to build that culture, right? So you have to be like a grounded, healthy person yourself if you're going to be a leader to other people. Yeah, there's that fine balance because my question was going to be, had you not worked so much, would it have worked so well? But you're right. If you're working too much, then you fall into the no asshole role and which yeah. doesn't work at all because then people leave, they don't follow you and you lose all the great talent that you've worked so hard to recruit. So yeah, that is a fine balance. So those are three. Now, let me ask you about LinkedIn because any yeah. physicians listening know Lawrence's <laughs> name. How did you come up with that idea? Because I thought that was, I, we never did that for MD, but I always thought that was genius. I, I thought that was really cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I did uh, drink the Kool-Aid in the beginning and try to pitch off the Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road VCs when I was a naive 21-year-old. Now I'm 30. But, you know, like part of it was just getting rejected by those VCs and still thinking that the idea was good and figuring out another way to get it done. But then as I got these individual angel investors involved and physicians involved, and they started almost acting as like advisors to me. I thought, why don't I triple down on this? And, and the thought was to say, let's make, you know, instead of going to a venture capital firm for capital and advice, why don't we make this more of a grassroots effort of physicians and individuals who want to have a social impact in healthcare? And so now we have more than 500 physicians that have invested over $33 million in equity financing into the company where they've typically put in 25 to 100K, which goes a very long way when you're building software. You know, it's not like we're building cars 
you're just supporting a small team of software engineers. Like the whole team that built Instagram was like, what, 13 people or something, right? And it was a billion dollar something exit, right? So they're investors, but they're also participating almost like on this advisory board where we have an online discussion forum set up for them. Your software called Basecamp, where they're giving feedback and input. So we're basically crowdfunding capital for the company, crowdsourcing knowledge for the company, and then building a network of evangelists that have conviction around our social mission of preventing type 2 diabetes. But the thing that we've done in the last six months is that instead of going to physicians, we've made a really focused effort to get people involved with more diverse backgrounds in technology, finance, sales, and marketing. So now we have people as investors and advisors from like Google, IBM, Accenture, Microsoft, Amazon, health plan CEOs. And those people are investing because they have a mom or a dad with diabetes or a spouse with diabetes, or they just have this personal connection to it. And it really just gets back to this quote that I like, which is the only thing that's ever changed the world is a small group of committed citizens. I mean, I'd rather have a thousand physicians and technologists that are driven by the mission than than one venture capital firm that might one day decide, you know what, this is not our favorite portfolio company. We're just going to write them off. Right. So I think that you can't fail when you have this almost like social movement of people that want to see diabetes prevented compared to just a private equity group being an investor. So that's kind of been our approach. They're very cool. Yeah, because I've, I've been, I've clicked through those links. So the very, uh, one was compelling. You have a great message. Yeah. And I thought it was a really cool strategy to do that. Um, so where are you, where are you headed next? So you, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go after too many rabbits. So where's the next uh, stop for you? Well, um, yeah, there's both within Fruit Street and outside of Fruit Street. I mean, in Fruit Street right now, we've been mostly focused on selling to self-insured employers and health plans, but we're expanding into two new channels. Um, One is getting physicians to refer their patients because Medicaid pays for the diabetes prevention program. So in states like Illinois, Fruit Street is a Medicaid provider, which is really exciting because they're specifically paying for it through telehealth. So we're starting to focus on that, um, where physicians can refer pre-diabetic patients. And then also direct to consumer, similar to companies like Noom, but instead of marketing it as a weight loss program to uh, focus on marketing it more as a diabetes prevention program and raising awareness of prediabetes. So we've been interviewing some of the top ad agencies to really make a big national push to get millions of people to become aware of prediabetes and then aware of the fruit street. So that's what's happening in the the first free universe today, but, uh, you know, I have a couple other projects too. So. Of course. Now you're still the CEO of fruit street. Yep. Yep. Do you have the, I mean, so my, you know, I always tried to replace myself after eight or 10 years. Do you have that MO as well? Or are you going to keep riding? Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question that was brought up recently. Uh, you know, just because, um, I think, like if you look at bigger companies, sometimes you only have a CEO for like a few years just because it just takes so much out of you in terms of that work-life balance. I think right now I'm kind of enjoying it and we just kind of keep going. And I think the key is to surround yourself with good people. Like we just hired an incredible chief operating officer who was one of our investors and advisors for quite a while. So I still have kind of unlimited energy to keep going, but uh, just trying to hire some smart people to help me. But I mean, I'm really driven by the mission of it, which is why I have so much energy for it. It's like, if you think about, let's say I spent 20 years of my life on this, maybe we would have a million people go through the diabetes prevention program. And then you're preventing amputation, blindness, heart disease, dialysis. And we, we get these, um, incredible stories every Wednesday from the dietitians. It's called Wednesday wins. And every week they share success stories with patients. And you hear things like, this person lost 50 pounds. This person went to their doctor and they took them off of five medications. This person reversed their prediabetes. This person reversed their sleep apnea. 
And it's just, uh, that's kind of like the motivating, you know, factor really. Yeah, that's really hard. It's not, well, not hard. It's impossible to ignore because, because you're right. If you can get folks early to drastically lower their carbohydrate intake, get off insulin, start reversing their, you know, coronary artery disease and peripheral vascular disease. I mean, it's, it's literally going to save their life. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You said something that was actually really interesting because I started my entrepreneurial career with your message of, you know, I'm not looking for the exit. I'm blah, 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 blah. That, that was me. But you know, what I, t- what I tell people now and what I've kind of learned is if you don't think of the exit, when you start, you don't really have a direction where you're headed to get there. And so you're a little bit of a meandering ship along the way. Now you don't sound like you've meandered much, but, but for me, it seemed like I was doing more meandering as I was trying to find the, the exit. Cause I didn't really think of that when I started, but now, however, I try to go, go back to that thought process you had and, and how, how you got there. Cause I, I don't think, I think that's atypical. Yeah. Well, I think that um, the way I look at entrepreneurship is that you're, you're solving a problem for someone, right? And so, and if you solve a problem for someone, you have customers, right? And the more revenue you have, you know, the more likely you are to have an exit, right? So I think that there's kind of like two, almost two types of entrepreneurs, right? There's, there's entrepreneurs that start a business to make money. And then there's entrepreneurs that start it for maybe more of a social impact reason. When I started Fruit Street, it was because of this like, almost like just really compelling thing where I wanted to prevent that patient from coming into the emergency room and dying from their obesity. I mean, there was literally a patient that died from obesity. And as a pre-med student, they had me like help them with the body, like literally. Um, And I'm like, this is what obesity is. And so I felt compelled for non-financial reasons. And so I think some companies, that's what it is. And that's why you start it. Other companies, it's more financially driven. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with either. I think you could have one entrepreneur where like one time they start a company, it's because of the social mission. And other times they think it's because it's an amazing business opportunity. I think it just depends on the person and the situation. I think as Fruit Streets become more mature, we definitely have identified an exit route that is, you know, highly likely. I mean, we've gotten a couple of acquisition offers already. And so we kind of have learned the types of companies that are going to acquire us in the future. But I don't know that you necessarily know that from day one. You know, there's a quote that I love, which is a startup is a company that doesn't know what its product is or who its customers are. <laughs> so, so like, I don't know if you can have an exit strategy until you figure out what your product is and who your customers are, but it depends on the situation and the business, you know? That, that is very true. I mean, even after, even after your MVP, you're still kind of scrambling. Like, okay, is this really, do I really have something here? Or is it going to take a few more pivots before before it gets there. I mean, you know, I listened to a Zuckerberg interview recently and there's no way when he was in his college dorm room doing uh, what's that called? Harvard face thing that he was, yeah. that he was envisioning the metaverse at Facebook. Yeah, right. That's classic. Um, what advice do you have for folks who do grow up and say they want to be you or, or physicians for that matter, who want to start their entrepreneurial venture, it sounds like you're saying, find something you really believe in that matters to you and focus on that because then everything else falls into place. Yeah. I mean, it has to be a little bit of an obsession. I think that's a Mark Cuban quote, but uh, you have to almost be like obsessed with it. I mean, you have to be willing to work on it 60 hours a week, right? I think it's okay if you think about an idea part-time and you work on it a little bit on the side. But at some point, if you really want to go for it, it has to be like your sole focus. It has to be like your baby because 
you're competing with people where like that's that's what it is right it's like it's like they have to do this right but i think don't do it because you think it's a good financial opportunity do it because you think it's going to have a social impact but also do some planning like don't just like quit your job immediately right i mean like you know print out stuff like um there's the lean startup canvas where you lay out like the product the revenue model you know the the market size you know the opportunity all that kind of stuff i mean i think everybody should read the book lean startup you know it's like a must read for anybody that wants to be an entrepreneur so i think that's the first place i'd point him to read read the lean startup so I, it's funny you, you started that book. I, I, so I love Eric Ries and that book is, book is amazing. I wish he would have written it much earlier than he did because God knows I made pretty much every mistake in the book along the way. But I think for a lot of physicians, particularly, they're going to have to start this as a side hustle until, like you said, they, they figured it out. Is this something they can really launch off of and turn that into their occupation and their avocation you know, outside of medicine? And that for a lot of folks is a, is a difficult, a difficult leap of faith. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it depends on what it is, right? Like, cause they, they also could just be the idea co-founder and, you know, have hire a CEO to like run it. I mean, I don't know, maybe you come up with a medical device, for example, or an idea for a pharmaceutical drug and they don't necessarily have to quit being a physician full time. I mean, I think that every business needs like a full-time CEO, right? right? But I think that a physician could come up with an idea and work on it two or three days a week or even work on it, you know, as an advisor, but somebody has to be full-time. I've actually, I've had Fruit Street investors that have started companies and nobody's working on the business full-time. And I'm like, the first thing you have to do is hire a full-time CEO. Yeah. Because you will not succeed otherwise, right? It's okay if you want to be a co-founder, be an advisor, but you need a full-time CEO. Otherwise you're guaranteed to fail. Yeah, totally agree. Do you think you're ever employable again? I mean, are you ever going to be employable? Well, I've never had a, a real job aside from being a cash register at a Harvard cafeteria, being a swim instructor, being a viola teacher. But um, aside from like, I've never had like a full corporate job, but uh, sometimes I envy people that that are employed because, you know, entrepreneurship is pretty hard. I mean, you have to worry about like meeting payroll and like all that kind of stuff. I mean, probably once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, I suppose. But uh you never know what the future holds in life, right? <laughs> there you go. I, I always tell people I'm probably unemployable after doing this so long. Okay, so where can people find out more about you? Uh, yeah, just go to fruitstreet.com or, or check me out on LinkedIn. But um, LinkedIn is definitely a good place to find me, as you've pointed out. <laughs> well, it, it's really the other way. We can't miss you on LinkedIn or you can't miss us. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I'm sure everybody listening to this has been, uh, has been pinged by you, which is really cool. So Hey, congratulations, Lawrence. You have had, you have done phenomenal things. You're, you've got a, a, at least another 30 years in you. I can tell with that energy. Oh, level. So uh, congratulations. You're killing it. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, folks, thanks. Another, uh, another phenomenal edition of Entrepreneurs RX uh, with Lawrence Gerard. Well, check out our show notes. We'll have all links to him and everything he's doing, including his new ventures. And um, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.